Um, I'm excited about this series. There's so much depth. There's so much richness. And there's such great opportunities to see what it's like and how God works in the world. Because even though a lot has changed in the last 3,000 years since the events in this book, God is still the same. and And we as human beings are still basically the same. And the way that God engages with us is also the same. And so what I want to do is I want to actually read the passage that we're going to focus in on. And that's going to be 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I want to read those verses and then I'm going to go back and catch us up to figure out how we got to chapter 2. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn there to 1 Samuel chapter 2. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 11 for us. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one beside you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who are full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. This is God's word. Um, And whether you're familiar with what's going on in the events, or if you're not, you might be feeling right now like, all right, well, that that was a nice song. That was a nice prayer. Uh, I need to be caught up. What in the world is going on here? This is chapter two of 1 Samuel, and it's a song, a prayer by a woman named Hannah. So let's get up to speed with what's going on in this book. And, and first of all, here's a striking thing. If you think of the book of 1 Samuel, or 1 and 2 Samuel, which really is one book, you might think, all right, the, the main character in this, if you're familiar with this, the main character in this book is David, the shepherd boy who eventually becomes a king. But 1 Samuel doesn't start with David. In fact, he doesn't show up till chapter 16. And you might think, okay, but but that's right. David was the second king of Israel, so it must start with Saul, the first king of Israel. But no, it doesn't start with him. He doesn't show up till chapter 9. 
And then you might say, all right, but, all right, but there was the king maker. There was Samuel the prophet who anointed David and before that anointed Saul. So, so it begins with Samuel. It, it actually doesn't begin with Samuel. It begins with Samuel's mother, Hannah. And we get a little bit of the lowdown on Hannah in chapter one. So there's good news and bad news about Hannah. The good news is this. She's married to a man named Elkanah and Elkanah loves her. That's about it. That's about it for the good news. Here's the bad news with Hannah. She's barren. She's unable to have children. And probably because of the fact that she was unable to have children, Elkanah takes on another wife named Penina. And she is able to have children. A point of great grief to Hannah, who longs for children, but is unable to have them. And as chapter one proceeds, Hannah is constantly on the wrong end of things. She's constantly receiving difficulty. Um, And it starts with Penina, who's Elkanah's other wife. And Penina mocks Hannah because she's unable to have children. She's relentless about it. Um, By the way, on this, you know, in the Old Testament, there's a lot of passages where there's polygamy. This is one of them. There's polygamy here. And a lot of us want there just to be this passage in the Old Testament that comes right out and says, this is wrong. This is horrible. You should only have one wife. You should only be married to one person. You shouldn't have polygamy. That doesn't show up. But what does show up is that every time there's polygamy, there is chaos. It's presented for that reality. And this is no exception. There's conflict and Hannah is so grieved that she cries and she even stops eating because she's in so much grief over the mockery that she's receiving from Penina. Um, And then Elkanah, who's well-meaning, kind of plays the the normal husband role. He's well-meaning, he goes to comfort Hannah, but when he goes to comfort Hannah, he kind of makes it all about himself. He says, why are you so sad? Aren't I as good as 10 sons to you? Which he's trying to make her feel better, but you can even feel this. This is a major husband mistake. We go to try to make our wives feel better and we end up making it all about ourselves. And so he does that, he's no real help to her. And then later on in the passage, Hannah, when she's desperately and passionately praying before the Lord, she's mistaken by the high priest as being a woman who's drunk because she's so passionate that her lips are moving and no words are coming out. All throughout chapter one, Hannah is on the wrong side of things. She's mocked and she's misunderstood. But something important happens. I mentioned that she was praying. And when she's praying, here's the specific thing that she's praying. She's praying that God will give her a son. And she so longs to have a son that she even says, God, if you give me a son, I will dedicate that son to you. I will bring him to your house and he will serve there as a priest. She even makes further a vow that no razor will ever touch his head. This is the idea that he'd be a Nazarite, sort of like Samson in the book of Judges. He wouldn't drink any wine. He would never have his hair cut. He would stay away from dead things. He would be fully devoted to the Lord. She prays this passionately and God answers her prayer. And after years of not being able to give birth, she gives birth to a baby and she names him Samuel. And when Samuel's old enough, she brings him to the house of the Lord 
to serve there. And at this point, he's probably just three, four years old. She's following through on the dedication that she made because God has answered her prayer. And then in chapter two, we have the passage that we just read, which is when she comes to drop him off, she prays this beautiful prayer, this beautiful song that's recorded here for us. And as we get ready to walk through this song in a little bit more detail, here's what I want you to realize. This is not just a random song recorded in the Bible. This is not just a random song about Hannah being excited about God doing something specific for her. This song broadens out and in many ways, this song sets the tone for what the entire book of 1 Samuel is about. So let me just give you a clue here. This song is going to be a masterclass in both exalting God and also in promoting humility. The main response that we are to have to God in his greatness is that we respond with humility. And that not only is going to be key with this song, it's going to be key through the entire book of 1 Samuel. And so here's how it unfolds. Hannah starts with a celebration. Then she moves on to talk about an inversion. And finally, at the end, she looks ahead to an expectation. So let's look back through the song. And she starts with the celebration, which makes sense. This is an exciting event. It says in verse one, Hannah prayed and said, my heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn, which sort of means my strength, my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies. And actually, literally, when it says my mouth boasts over my enemies, it says my mouth is opened wide, which could mean one of two things. I mean, it could mean like it's translated here in, in the NIV, I boast, my mouth opens to boast, but it also could mean my mouth opens up to swallow up my enemies like a lion would. She says, for I delight in your deliverance. Just look at this again. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord is where my horn is lifted high. I delight in your deliverance. Hannah is celebrating God and she is giving all the credit to God for the fact that even though she was low, even though she was mocked, even though she was misunderstood, even though she was barren, she now is celebrating and she gives all the credit and all the glory of that to God. And then she goes on to talk about just how amazing and just how great God is. She says in verse two, there is no one holy like the Lord. God is utterly unique. He's set apart. He's different. There is no one God who is holy like you. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. And the whole idea of God being a rock, which is an image that shows up frequently, especially in the Old Testament and in poetry, the image of God being a rock. Just imagine that you're in a river and the waves, not, not, not the waves, but the tide is coming in. You're being, you're being pulled along. The current is strong and you are just desperately looking for something to hold on to. You're looking for some stability in the midst of the current and you grab a hold of a rock. And what Hannah is saying here is not just that God is a rock, 
He's not just one of many rocks that we might grab a hold of and find stability and strength in our life. She is saying, there is no rock like our God. He is utterly unique. He is utterly strong. And then look at what she says in verse three. She sort of turns outward to talk to everyone else. She says, do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak with arrogance. Now here, just on a side note, this song, it's very personal to Hannah, especially in these opening verses. So when she's saying, don't speak so arrogantly, probably the first person that she has in mind is her rival, Panina, the other wife. She's probably thinking of all the mockery and all the arrogance that's come against her. And she's saying, no, you gotta close your mouth because I've had a child also. But she also is speaking more broadly. She's reminding all of us, if we speak arrogantly, if we are proud, we're in deep trouble. Because she says in the end of verse three, for the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. In other words, God is the ultimate judge. God is the ultimate deliverer. God is the ultimate strength. God is the ultimate judge. She celebrates God. And I mentioned humility earlier. What I want to say is what Hannah is doing here in celebrating is one of the most humble things that anybody can do. She is celebrating with total humility, which is strange because when you think of celebrating, whether it's a sports team on the field or whether it's an army after a great, uh, after a great victory or somebody that's just got a job promotion, when you think of celebrating, normally we think, well, well that's kind of making it all about me. That, that's a proud moment where I'm drawing attention to myself, but that's not what's going on at all. Hannah's celebration here is pointing all the glory and all the credit to God. He is the one who won this victory and she wants to make that totally clear. In fact, what she's doing here in some ways is fulfilled later on in 1 Samuel in the famous story of David fighting Goliath. And I know that this is familiar even to people who have never read the story, never read the Bible. David and Goliath is a famous story. Um, What some people miss is the whole setting of the battle. And the setting of the battle is that David, the shepherd boy, is going up against Goliath, the great warrior, in a representational battle. Instead of having the army of the Israelites fight the army of the Philistines, Goliath comes forward as the Philistine champion. David comes forward as the Israelite champion. And they say, we're going to fight. Whoever wins, the other army will be the slaves of the winner's army. David is going out as a representative for all the people. So when he wins, they win. And afterwards, they rejoice. And their rejoicing is not them saying, look what we did. Their celebration is saying, look what David did and his victory is our victory. And Hannah is here celebrating. She's saying, look what God did and his victory is my victory. Let's just pause here and think for a minute. Are we celebrating the good things that God has done? Are we even celebrating the prayers that he's answered? Are we even aware, are you aware right now of the ways God has brought victories and are you celebrating those victories? 
And for, for you married folks out here, follow me on this. Have you had the experience where you had a conflict, you had a husband-wife conflict, um, and, and then you, you dealt with it and you talked together and you were both very calm and you listened carefully to each other and you got to the end and you said, we resolved that, that was good, it didn't get out of control. We, we, we talked together and we're stronger now moving forward. Have you ever had that experience and then paused and thought, wait a second, how did we do that? I mean, two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, what just happened right there would have been a major blow up. We would have been so mad at each other. Somebody would have been storming out of a room. There might've been name calling that we, we might have not talked to each other for a couple hours or for even a couple days. How, how, did, how did we just do this? Have you ever had a moment where you've realized there has been profound growth? When you have that moment, that's a moment to celebrate. And not to celebrate, we've realized and we've discovered how to resolve conflict, but to celebrate God has been at work refining us and something that would have set us at odds before has now brought us together. Have you ever had a moment where, where somebody says something or maybe because of social media writes something and you know it's just, it's there to get your goat. It, it's, it's just begging for retaliation. It's begging for you to figure out some way to get back at that person for saying that, um, but you don't take the bait and you just sort of move on and you say, it's okay, I don't need to prove myself before anyone. And then you pause and say, wait a second, how, how, how did I do that? How did that happen? How, how have I had this growth in my life over an area of weakness or maybe over an area of sin that, that before I would have been just easy pickings for that temptation. I would have been a sitting duck, but I was able to resist it. That's a moment to celebrate. And not to celebrate your strength or your will, but to celebrate that God has been at work. Man, it is one of the most humble things that we can do to celebrate that God has been at work instead of moving forward and assuming that things are better in our lives. The addictions are lessened. The sin is lessened. The conflict is lessened. Our hearts are more generous. Instead of giving ourselves the credit, one of the most humble things that we can do is to respond and say, this is the deliverance of God. And Hannah here doesn't look at the situation and say, I was barren, but I figured out the right prayer to pray and now I got myself a son. She says, this is all from God. She responds with glory to God and with humility for herself. If we're going to respond to God, we've got to respond with humility and humility celebrates. She starts with the celebration and then in verses four through eight, she moves on to the inversion. And here's what I mean by an inversion. When something's inverted, it's upside down. It's the reverse of what you would expect it to be. And in verses four through eight, Hannah walks through five ways that God has brought reversal, five ways that God inverts the norm because of his great power. And the first inversion that she talks about in verse four has to do with strength. Listen to what she says. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those strong warriors who had it all together, their bows have now been broken. But those stumbling warriors, those people who didn't have it all together and were the weak links, now they are the ones who are strong. God has made the strong weak. God has made the weak strong. And just notice, because you're going to see this as a theme, she continues to say this is something that God is doing. 
It's not just happening. It's not just karma. It's not just random. It's something that God is doing. There's an inversion when it comes to strength. There's also an inversion when it comes to provision. In verse five, she says, those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who are hungry are hungry no more. The full are now hungry, the hungry are now full. There's an inversion. And she's speaking broadly about how God does this, but there's also something personal about this because if we were to go back to chapter one, we would see that Hannah, when she's mocked by Penina, stops eating because of her grief. And then after she prays and the priest Eli talks to her and says, God is gonna answer your prayer, the next thing that she does is she goes and has something to eat. She was hungry and now she's filled. God inverts the process. Later on in verse five, we get the third inversion. And this inversion has to do with fertility. It has to do specifically with Hannah's story. She says, she who was barren has borne seven children. And the idea of seven here, it's the idea of fullness or completeness, like seven days in a week. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who had many sons pines away. And once again, this is very personal to Hannah because Hannah, it said back in chapter one, verse six, that it wasn't simply that she was barren, it was that the Lord had closed her womb. And then later on, when we get to chapter one, verse 19, it says that the Lord visited her so that she could get pregnant. God is the one in charge of this. And, and here's a weird thing about this in our culture. Um, in our culture right now, we sort of look at it as people who have a lot of children, that's difficult. They're sort of in trouble about that. And those who are able to get by without the bother of children are considered to be in a little bit of a better position. Um, and, and here's the deal, obviously cultures were different and children were viewed as more of an asset than a liability in this time. But this is also something that's just worth us realizing. The Bible beginning to end talks about children as being a gift of God. And one of the things that is already happening and is gonna continue to happen is that if we live our lives trying to make sure nobody's bothering us, then in the end, we're gonna have nobody bothering us. We're gonna have a very lonely result in our lives if we try to live for utter convenience. Hannah sees this as a blessing. She says, I know it's true because my womb was closed because of the Lord and now my womb is open because of the Lord. God is in charge of all of this. There's a fourth inversion that goes in verse six. And this one has to do with health. She says, the Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. God is in charge of life and death. God is in charge of health and sickness. There can be somebody at death's door that then God rescues. In fact, when we see the power of Jesus, we see that Jesus is able to even bring them back after death. God is in charge of life and death. He's in charge of health and sickness. And during a time like this, what a comfort to know that there is somebody. Who gets sick is not at random. There is a God who is in charge of all of this. In fact, the idea of God giving life and death is seen later on throughout 1 Samuel in the story of Saul and David, where Saul, the first king of Israel, is looking to hunt down David, who's been anointed to be the next king. And throughout, God continues to deliver David. He continues to get him out of tight spots and save his life when it should have been ended long ago. 
And God is also the one who announces to Saul that his death is coming at the hands of the Philistines. God inverts life and death. Those who are riding high are brought low. Those who are at death's door are brought back. And finally, the the fifth inversion has to do with wealth. Verse seven, she she says, the Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honor. God is the one who brings wealth and poverty. God is the one who takes a poor shepherd boy like David and makes him the great king of Israel. God is in charge. And it's not only that God is in charge, and, and frankly, in some of these things, that, that this is sort of a different sermon for a different time, but in some of these things, this makes us nervous. We, we would rather say, God doesn't bring life and death, but God makes the best out of the bad situations when we get sick. Um, God doesn't bring wealth and poverty, but when we're poor, God makes the best out of that situation. We, we seem to be afraid. We want to let God off the hook. And I just want to say, God does not appear to want us to let him off the hook. He says, I am the one in charge of all of this. He is the one with all of the glory. And what he says he does over and over again is that he humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. He does that when it comes to strength. He does that when it comes to health. He does that when it comes to wealth. He does that when it comes to fertility. He does that when it comes to food and provision. He humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. This is what we see in Hannah's story. This is what we see later on in David's story. This is what we see throughout the Bible. In fact, we we should be prepared for this. What Hannah is announcing here is that there's a revolution. Those who are high will be brought low. Those who are trod upon, those who are trod upon will be brought high. There's a revolution coming. And if we've read the gospels, we know that Jesus full sail signs onto this revolution just in the opening parts of the Sermon on the Mount. In the Beatitudes at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about who blessing is coming to. And he says, the blessing is coming to the meek. Blessing is coming to those who mourn, to those who are poor, to those who are cast aside, to those who are trying to make peace, to those who are insulted and persecuted. There is a great reversal coming. Jesus in more than one passage says that the humble will be exalted and the exalted will be humbled. Jesus consistently brings forth this message. In fact, not only that, Jesus' life puts this on display where he suffers for us before he experiences glory. He's brought low in a sacrificial death so that he can bring us eternal life through his resurrection. This is the story of Jesus. And this is also our story if we are believers in Jesus. Because we've humbled ourselves through faith. We've said, I have sin, I can't save myself. I have weakness, I can't give myself eternal life. I have all of these weaknesses and failures, I can't make myself new. God, I completely throw myself at your mercy and place my faith in Jesus. Faith is humbling to us. And if you're watching this and you've never placed your faith in Jesus, man, today is the day to do it. Today is the day 
to humble yourself. Man, humility is right at the center of what God requires of us. In fact, if you end up going through the life group lesson later this week, there's gonna be a lot of questions that delve into why humility is so core to how we live our lives as believers in Jesus. Humility is right at the center of this when we're responding to Jesus. So so here's the deal. The great reversal is happening. The great inversion is happening. This revolution is happening. How do we respond to it? And I'd say in at least three ways. The first one is the most obvious. We respond to the idea that God humbles the proud and then exalts the humble. We respond to this, first of all, by humbling ourselves so that God doesn't have to humble us. We respond to God with gratitude and humility, recognizing everything we have is a gift from him. And we walk humbly before him. That's number one. Number two is that when we need deliverance, we look to him and not to ourselves. But number three that that I want to develop a little bit, number three is that we make choices to participate in this inversion, in this reversal. The church of Jesus Christ is meant to be a people among whom we see this great inversion happening. Where we see people who are outcasts because they don't have enough money, because they don't have the right social skills, because they don't, they're not the same race as a bunch of other people. For whatever the reason, people who are outcasts are now full people who belong where before they were on the outside. The church is meant to be a people where the poor are enriched and where the rich sacrificially give of themselves to help the poor have more. In fact, even if you just look through the things that Hannah talks about in this, the different inversions that are happening, man, this is why we give, this is why currently we are bringing food to our church to give to those who need to have it delivered to them. We are becoming a little bit less rich in our resources so that others can become more rich in their resources. This is why we give financially. So we become a little bit less rich and others are enriched because of this. Um, this is why, and, and I love this, that this uh, that re- recently we had a blood drive in our church and so many people from our church responded and signed up from this that it was going to be on a Saturday. We moved it to a Friday and a Saturday. And Karina and I got to be there to witness what was going on here. We were giving of our health so that others who are sick could receive that. We participate in the great inversion. Um, I I think about this with all of us, especially if you're listening to this and you're in junior high or high school. When you you make the choice to use your social status to include somebody that otherwise would be excluded, you are participating in this great revolution, this great reversal that God is making. We not only get to sit back and observe that this is what God is doing, we get to participate in it. So here's the question. Are you participating? Are you becoming poorer so that others can become richer? Are you becoming less healthy so that others can become more healthy? Are you giving of your social status so that others can be included? We participate in this great inversion, but there's one more step. There's one more movement in this song and that's that Hannah talks about anticipation. In fact, she really moves here from talking about what God does to what God will do. At the end of verse eight, she says, for the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them, he has set the world. 
and the foundations here that they're probably not an image of something physical, but probably the image of sort of the principles and even the moral principles on which the world has set, on which reality is set. Then in verse nine, she says, he will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Hannah celebrates in great humility because the victory belongs to God. And then she talks about the great inversion that God is at work doing. And now she anticipates a future. And the future that she anticipates is when all things are set right. When all justice is finally ruling and all injustice is finally cured. Where the wicked are punished and the humble are rewarded. She envisions a future where God makes all things right. And, and this is so significant. This is so beautiful because we live in a world where we long for this. But a lot of times we don't see it. And not only do we not see things being fixed, but, but we feel helpless to really fix things. Um, if, if you're a baseball fan, and if, especially if you're a Dodger fan, you experienced some grief over this last offseason when information started coming out about how the Houston Astros had cheated during the 2017 season and during the World Series. And, and there was all these kind of articles going around and all this discussion going around, you know, because they did this, should they just reward the Dodgers and say that they were the world champions this year? Is there some way to delve into this and figure out what happened? And, and at the end of the day, the, the bottom line is that there was just, there was no way to fix this. I mean, you could go into the record books and you could erase the Astros and you could put the Dodgers, but no one's really satisfied with that. That, that doesn't really fix things. There's no way to turn back the clock and fix this. And that's frustrating to us. We want to be able to make things right. And you know, that, that's kind of silly. That's just baseball. Who really cares about that? But there are bigger things that we experience the same frustration with. So maybe it has to do with reparations from something done wrong. Maybe we're looking back and saying, all right, you know, like black people in our country experience all this injustice or we're looking at reparations after the Holocaust and, and we're saying that there's got to be a way. There was huge injustice done. We've got to make it right. And yet we continue to struggle with even formulating how this would get done, even if we're willing. Sometimes we're unwilling and sometimes we're just unable and we say, gosh, we'd like to fix this. Sometimes it is kind of simple how you carry out justice. And sometimes we, we are just incapable of, as human beings of making this happen. But you know who is not incapable is God. And we get to look to a future and humbly anticipate him fixing it all. And when we humbly anticipate him fixing it all, it means that we can also have the humility to recognize that we have our own limitations and we aren't able to bring perfect justice now. And we grieve over that, but we grieve with hope, knowing that we are not the last resort. God is going to get this done. Hannah shows us how the celebration of God is a true act of humility. She shows us the great revolution, the great inversion that God is bringing and how he's going to bring low the proud and raise up the humble. And then she shows us how we anticipate with humility, recognizing we can't save ourselves, but God ultimately can and will save us. 
You know, first and second Samuel, the, these two books, these are about Israel moving into a time where they started having kings. But right here at the beginning, Hannah gives us a reminder that there's only one king of the kings. In fact, look at the last words of Hannah's song. She says, he, speaking of God, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, which is an odd thing to write when there's never been any king in Israel to this point. But she writes it as a preview. God is gonna give strength to his king. God is gonna exalt the horn of his anointed. And by the way, that term anointed is where we get our word Messiah, anointed one. Hannah is previewing here, when Saul is humble, God's gonna exalt him. And when Saul is proud, God's gonna humble him. When David is humble, God's going to exalt him. And when David is proud, God's gonna humble him. But as great a king as David was, and as much as God was with him, he still didn't fulfill all that God had promised. He still didn't bring final justice. He still didn't rule the people with perfect humility and deliver them. That shall belong to an anointed one who would come much later, a descendant of David, the true Messiah, Jesus Christ, who was brought low when he was sacrificed for our sins and was exalted high through his resurrection. Thank God that there is a king of the kings. And you know what? We may have many kings in our world today. We may have kings and emperors and presidents and governors and mayors and celebrities and all kinds of important people, but there is only one king of the kings. There is only one who can truly and finally bring military victory. There is only one who can truly feed all of the hungry. There is only one who can open and close the womb. There is only one who can bring wealth and there's only one who can save from death. We find our hope, we find our strength and we find our celebration in the King of the Kings. And so I have just three questions for us as we think about this passage. Question number one, are you celebrating the victories that the King of Kings has brought in a way that gives him all the glory? Question number two, are you participating in the great revolution, in the great inversion that God is bringing where the proud are humbled and the humble are exalted? And question number three, are you placing all of your hope? Are you placing all of your trust in the one true King of the Kings who will bring perfect justice in the end. Let me pray for us to close our time. Father, thank you so much. You are the King of the Kings. You are the great God who delivers. You're worthy of all the glory, all of the celebration, all of the honor and all of the thanks. And I pray that you bring us the humility that will honor you and bring us your help. Father, we pray that you raise us up when we're low, that you deliver us when we're needy. And Father, I pray that you shine your light through us as we participate in the great humbling and exalting that you're at work doing. Pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen. And thanks so much. God bless you the rest of this Sunday.